You are listening to John DeYard's Life Spa, your premier source for health news in Ayurveda, where modern science meets ancient wisdom. Hi, I'm Dr. John DeYard, and welcome to LifeSpa.com, where we prove the ancient medical wisdom of Ayurveda with modern science. And today, we have a very special guest, um, a, a, a mentor of mine, um, one of his first books, The McDougall Plan, Dr. John McDougall, one of the pioneers in, in, in vegetarian vegan diets. Um, my mom's a fan. My family's a fan. I've read his books for decades now. Uh, I am truly honored to have him as our guest. There's, there's very few people on the planet that have been preaching the exact same message for 40 years. And Dr. John McDougall is here to share that information with us. At the same time, you know, there's a, a massive surge in veganism on the planet in our country, thanks to pioneers like Dr. John McDougall. But there's also a massive surge in ketogenesis and carnivorous diets are now all of a sudden coming out of, out of, out of, out of who knows where. And we have a lot of confusion out there for folks to, I don't know what to eat. Even some of the, the most experienced dietitians don't know where to go because the science on both sides of the aisle seems to be conflicting. So I'm gonna try to have Dr. John McDougall convince us all that we should be vegans. Uh, I'm going to present a lot of science to him on both sides of the aisle, and he's going to, he knows the vegan science. I'm going to try to ask him some, some difficult questions and see if we can make some sense out of this crazy concept of what should be so simple, what we should actually eat. So let me tell you a little bit more about, uh, about Dr. John McDougall, author of 13 best-selling books. He's board-certified internist, licensed in five states. He's the author of 13 books plus the online newsletter, the McDougall, McDougall Newsletter. Uh, he's a co-founder of the 10-day Live-In McDougall program in Santa Rosa, California, which I hear amazing things about. He's a clinical instructor of, for four schools uh, training young physicians. Other than uh, other McDougall activities include seminars and health-oriented adventure vacations. How cool would that be? Uh, scientific results of the McDougall program are in and they're published in journals such as the Nutrition Journal and in the MS and Related Disorders Journal. So you can get more information about Dr. McDougall at drmcdougall.com. Dr. McDougall, truly an honor to meet you. Um, truly an honor to have you on this podcast and welcome. Well, thank you very much. Uh, yes, uh, I am a doctor, but I'm also a grandfather. And I think you should remember that most about me because you know, I lived a good life. I'm 72 years old, uh, but I have children and grandchildren who need a world to live in. So I have to say that's my main focus of attention. Now, I'm going to say a couple of sentences many times during this presentation, which are will make the discussion unarguable. And the sentence and the statement I want to make to you is that all large, successful populations of people throughout all of verifiable history have consumed the bulk of their calories from starch. That's 99.99% of people that have ever lived on this planet have obtained their, the bulk of their calories from corn, potatoes, rice, sweet potatoes, etc. Examples being the Aztecs and the Mayans, which are known as the people of the corn from Central America, the Incas who lived on potatoes and quinoa, when you think of Asians, you think of 2 billion people with 90% of their diet white rice. 
starch-based diets have been the diets of human beings. We are starch eaters, starch abhorrents, starchitarians. Until you understand this, you will fail. You will not have control. And I'm going to say that again and again and again, and you will never have anybody who can argue with 100 million years of data. Ha! Plus what the scientific research says, which is consistent. However, you must understand industry owns 70% of the research. 70% of the scientific papers on food are paid for by the food industry, at least, at least. Same thing with the drug industry paying for their scientific research they publish in the New England Journal of Medicine, JAMA, Lancet, British Medical Journal, etc. I mean, this is just business, ladies and gentlemen. And our whole conversation over the next few minutes, you should think that these are people who are doing business that have gotten us personally in trouble, our communities in trouble, our countries in trouble, our planet in huge trouble. These are just people doing business. This is no conspiracy. They're just trying to put kids shoes on their own kids, pay their own children's tuition, even though they're making things like, you know, cow butt for food and drugs that kill people. You know, they're not doing it to hurt you. They're just doing it to make money. As a consequence, we've developed a world where people are sick. More people now... In fact, in the last 30 years, the World Health Organization has told us that more people are sick from overnutrition than undernutrition in the world. And I think you can find examples close to you, such as if you look at China over the last 35 years, they've gone from a population where less than 1% of the people had diabetes, a population where 90% of their diet was white rice before 1985, and they just published in the Journal of American Medical Association in the year 2013, that now the people in China suffer a diabetes uh, incidence of 12% of the population and half are pre-diabetic. That's happened in 35 years. You see the same thing in India. In India, the middle class is now as sick as the upper class. You know, every place you go, you can see, this is a stupid, simple message. People around the world in your lifetime likely, certainly in my lifetime, certainly in your lifetime, people around the world have changed their diets in the last 35 years, and you've seen them go from thin, active, hardworking, physically demanded people to fat, sick people who look like Americans. And that's because of the change in food. So let me, let me push back just a little bit and talk about <clears throat> some of the research, some of the anthropological research, like in the Journal of Nutrition um, uh, in clinical practice, also written up in uh, Daniel Lieberman's book, Harvard Professor, The Story of the Human Body. And he talks about how much our ancestors actually ate. And I recently interviewed Dr. David Perlmutter, author of Grain Brain, sort of pushing oh, back on he's Grain become, Brain, yeah, right. There's a, brain There's a brain dead guy for sure. Go ahead. And I'll make further comments on Paul Mutter's book. I've had him on my radio show many years past. Oh, nice, nice. Grain brain. Like grains make, that's why we almost lost World War II to grain eaters. And we did lose the Vietnam conflict to grain eaters. Grain is really bad for you when Vietnam and Ch Japan fight us on white rice. 
and almost win and win. Excuse me, David Polmeiter, you are lost. Get, okay. get real. Okay, I did push back on him because in his new revision of his Brain Bane book, he said that we ate 75% of our diet as fat. And according to... Uh, Hang, I agree. And according to the, 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 all the anthropologists, and in this book that references some of the best anthropological research, they say that the most we ate was about 20 to 35% of our diet is fat. But they also say that we only ate about 35 to 40% of our diet is carbohydrates. So I'm wondering, you know, I, I understand there are some cultures that may have eaten a, a very high starch diet. I'm a big fan of a starch diet. I wrote the book called Eat Wheat. I clearly understand that, that we acquired a gene called amylase to, to digest starch. Why do we actually have a gene that we didn't have previously to digest starch if we didn't need it? We have taste buds for starch on the tip of our tongue too that are independent of the sweet tasting taste buds. We have teeth, we have intestines, we have hands, we have everything that says we're starch eaters. But at the same time, the, the, the research shows that we only ate at a 40, 35 to 40% of the not true. Okay, I have read the research. I have read the research from the proceedings of the National Academy of Science, from science, from every other journal that deals with the history of man. And every single research paper says that we were starch eaters. And not 30% carbohydrate, but 80 to 90% carbohydrate. There is no dissension in the scientific research as to what we were eat eating. For okay. example, we have research on, would you like me to tell you some of the research? We yes. have research on Neanderthals all across Europe that shows that they were starch eaters. Neanderthals from 40,000 years ago. We have research from Mo Mozambique, from Africa, of 105,000 years ago that they ate starch-based diet. It I mean, the research goes on and on. Just uh, uh, last year, they talked about uh, a ship full of barley off the coast of Wales that they found. We were always starch eaters. The research does not say that we ate 30 to 40% of our diet as carbohydrate. You need to reread research. Excuse me, that's my passion. Okay, no, I get it's your passion, but you have to, but maybe you don't, but there are studies out there that do cite no, the, a lot less than that. And there, the answer, that. No. Let me, let no. me ask you a question, though. Let me there are you. not studies out there. There, is, there are studies that go back to the the, so the Christian Bible that show that we are starch eaters. Daniel took his men who were sick and visiting another kingdom, and he asked the gatekeeper to keep the men on a vegetarian diet. Daniel in the Bible did, 2,600 years ago. The first controlled trial on diet that was done, at the end of 10 days, they declared the men who stayed on the pulses, vegetables, starches, and water were much healthier than the people the men who ate the king's diet. So we have had controlled trials for over 2,600 years that have clearly shown that we are starch eaters. 90% of our calories have come from starch in almost all populations. The exceptions have been people who live on the extremes of the environment, such as the Inuit Eskimo. Right. They seven months a year on their on the Atkins diet. Uh, there are a few tribes in Africa and South America they eat all meat diets or high meat diets like the Maasai, et cetera. But this is just isolated, small, tiny populations of people. 99.99% of the people who walk this earth have attained the bulk of their calories from starch. 
That's the science. What about Maybe. the idea that we are seasonal eaters and that the, that the microbiome has been shown to shift dramatically from one season to the next? The bugs in the soil shift from one season to the next. And there are times of year when wheat and, and starches are harvested, but it's come late winter and early spring in the period of famine, it's more difficult to get those starches because those tubers and those grains don't harvest until the end of the summer. So is it possible that, it, that we are seasonal eaters and we went from periods of famine where we ate a, a massive amounts of starch in the summer and late summer, fall, but come winter and early spring, we actually went into periods of famine where there was no starch and actually actually became ketogenic because we were actually eating no food. And therefore, we weren't on a high starch diet during that time. And maybe actually to starve, like if you were in Vermont in January 10,000 years ago, you probably would have had a hunt to get something and therefore had some animal fats to insulate you and some of those fats to help you make it through the winter. How, talk to me about your perspective on that concept, that we were in fact season leaders and we went from high starch to low starch, from, from starch food fuel to keto food fuel to actually help us make it through a year. You know, that's an interesting theory and the first time I've heard that. So I appreciate what you have to say and I see some validity in it, but, <laughs> but most of the people up until recently on planet Earth have lived within temperate zones where it never snowed, where they always had crops. It was only when the human population migrated away from the equator to northern and southern latitudes that they were put in a situation where they had to switch in the wintertime to animal-based foods. All this tells me is that the human being is a survivor. We are one of the most amazing organisms ever made on planet Earth. We can live on two packs of cigarettes a day, a half a bottle of whiskey a day, and bacon and beef and butter and survive. So just because we can live through the winter during tough times, and the Eskimos are able to live with an average lifespan of 27 years, just because people can't survive at these, I think people live at Dairy Queen, at McDonald's. They live on meat and sugar. They live on food that never was, I mean, it never was real. So yeah. don't tell me just because the human being is able to live through a winter without a tremendous, by the way, they did store the starch. The nice thing about starch, it is, it is easy to store and last for months, if not years. You can take potatoes and put them in the basement and they're good for years. You can take grains and you can put them in a dry spot and they will survive and be edible a decade later. In fact, they used to do that in the Andes. Uh, you'll find in the Andes uh, uh, that they have a corn-based, or excuse me, they have a potato-based diet. And in the Andes, where the Incas were, in the Andes, they developed freeze-dried potatoes. I mean, 5,000 years ago, freeze-dried potatoes. And what they would do is take potatoes at night in the Andes, in the mountains that got frozen, freezing, and they would freeze the potatoes. The daytime, the sun came out, got very hot, and they would dry them. Then they would take the chuno, C H U N O, with a little wasn thing over the end. Uh, that's what it's called. It's still sold today in that part of the world. They would take this chuno, this uh, potato, uh, uh, dried potatoes, and they would put them in a dry uh, room, and it would su support that population for a decade of famine. So it wasn't 
true. It's not true that people who move north and south abandon a starch-based diet. They just stored their grains and potatoes and so on and ate them. Hey, catching an animal is hard. Catching an animal is difficult and hard to supply the population. But what hunter-gatherers have that distinguishes the hunter as the primary food provider is something called gender bias or sexual discrimination. It's the fact that the hunters were the men who went out on a voyage to find an animal and they were lucky if they got it back two weeks later rotten. Who got the food for the community? In 99.99% of the households, who gathered the bulk of the calories? The grandparents, the women, the children. There's no glory in being a woman, a grandparent, or a child. Glory goes to the men, the hunters. They are the ones. It's a lie based upon gender bias. Well, you're and right. We, you're, we you're should right. not tolerate that kind of lying, especially in a Me Too generation. Like, no, I, I agree with you. In fact, there's some really interesting, funny science to back that up. When they did the research with the Haza tribe, they found that the microbiome of the gut of the men and the women was completely different. The men and the women and children had microbes for starches and tubers, and the men had microbes for meat. So they'd go on their hunting parties, come back yep. empty. The wives would say, don't worry about it. You know, just wash up. I got dinner ready for you. Or they're having their barbecue out there. Or they're eating their little rabbit, whatever they did. But, the, but, the, but it is true. I mean, you think about Neanderthals for a second, who did live in the northern climate where it was cold. It was before agriculture. They didn't have the luxury of storing a lot of grain. That's so not that- true. But go ahead. It's not true. It's okay. not true. I will show you the studies in the Proceedings of the National Academy of Science that shows that the Neanderthal from the chilly northern uh, right. coast down to the Medi- hot Mediterranean uh, were starch eaters. You know, and of course, and of course, the more you go north, the more they relied on animal products. That's just natural. Right. But they were the Neanderthals were starch eaters. The scientific research has looked at hundreds of skeletons, looked between their teeth, and found starch granules. So I'm sorry I have to contradict your interpretation of the research, but I will go paper for paper, even though our differences in what we're saying are so tiny that the audience may not recognize it. I will go for you paper by paper. It is is yours, my scientific passion to read, understand, and to regurgitate what I see in the research. And I wrote about that study three and a half million years ago. They found gluten grains in the teeth of ancient humans. Three uh, and a half not three and a half million years ago. Two and a half million years ago. Well, I can Go ahead. The, I can show you the science. Uh, from Utah. I know the study. I'm, well, I'm just saying that I, that, that I cited that in my wheat book. So it's, there's a reference to that for sure. That we've been doing it for a long time. I think we agree upon that. But, the, but these, these were not humans. Excuse uh, me. These were humanoids. No, they, were, they, they were primates. They were subhuman primates. Right. So exactly. that you're talking about, and they right. had they found that they had uh, evidence in their teeth of being plant eaters. Yeah, it goes back 2,500 years, but oh, we have we have good research of 30, 40,000 years ago, long past the time when people said we went through the agricultural revolution of 12,000 years ago. That's not true. So you're, but so here's the elephant in the room: hunter gatherers were 
starch eaters and they weren't hunters, then, I mean, hunter-gatherers hunted, right? Yeah, I don't think there's any population of people throughout all of human history who's ever been vegan, except for, you know, people like us. So then, so no, nat- no natural diet has been without meat that I know of. Okay, then why, why have a natural diet of 100% veganism now? Well, because we have religious sects and we have a movement of people out there who believe that uh, being a vegan is important for moral reasons, mainly right. moral reasons. And one of the problems that I have in dealing with vegan, I was fired from the uh, vegan conference in 2017. I was an invited speaker and I was fired because I have a statement that says I eat turkey every other Thanksgiving. The reason I do that, whether I eat turkey ever or not, you will never know. But the reason I say I eat it every other Thanksgiving is I don't want people to think what I'm teaching is a vegan diet. What I'm teaching is a diet based on starch, rice, corn, potatoes, sweet potatoes, pasta, bread, etc. Whether or not you have a piece of ham for Christmas, an egg for Easter, a piece of cake on your birthday, some candy at Halloween, or a little turkey at Thanksgiving makes no difference at all in terms of actual health or planetary survival. It's a moral issue. It's a religious issue. The problem I have when I, and the reason I was fired from the vegan conference in Berkeley, California in 2017, was because these people preach veganism from a, a, a moral point of view, animal rights, which are important, extremely important. Right. Uh, world preservation, which is my main topic. Unfortunately, when I go to such a conference, and I was going to do this at this conference because they conflicted with me, I was going to ask the audience of 500 to 1,000 people, how many of you are vegan? Would you please stand up? And half the audience would stand up. And I would say, now look around the, look around the room and look at all the people who say they are vegan and take a close look at their physical appearance. Now, would you please sit down? I want you to notice that half the people who stood up who said they were vegan were overweight or obese. Obese. They are fat vegans. I don't want to be known as a vegan. A vegan could live on potato chips and Cokes. You're missing the point, even though my diet is pure vegan, (laughs) personally, and so is my whole family. You're missing the point. You can't live on Boca burgers and popsicles and fake food. You can't do it. It's wrong. Yeah, Yeah. no, I I agree. Vegans often don't like me but they should, and I like them a lot because they are so well prepared to join the cause. Can you imagine, can you imagine the scenario? <clears throat> Here you are, a fat vegan, which half of you are. Here you are, a fat vegan. You're standing up talking to your mother-in-law, or your best friend, you say, you have to change your diet to save the planet and to get your health back. And the person, the listener looks at you and goes, I'll let the planet die and the animals suffer if I have to look like you, fat and sick. You see the problem? So if I can get all of the vegans out there that are trying to do the same thing I'm trying to do, but their emphasis is on the animals and the planet, which mine is too, but I'm a doctor. I'm a medical doctor. So I started out with a full focus on human health. Mm. They, those fat vegans, half the population of vegans, can't convey their message because of the way they personally appear. Right. Get real, folks. 
we have a world to save, and you're not doing it looking sick and fat. Right. Which, by the way, most of the gurus who teach low-carb diets are fat and sick, a la Atkins, a la Lauren Cordain, a la Barry Sears, a la Sally Fallon, a la I could go on forever with these low-carb, fat, sick people. Am I clear? You very, yeah, Crystal, in fact. Um, so what you're saying is that there were no uh, vegetarian hunter-gatherers. We know that the science suggests there that- no, There were no vegetarians worldwide ever in the whole right. history, except for some group of priests living in an in a ashram someplace somewhere for religious beliefs. And that's, and, that's, and that's recent. So now to be 100% vegan, you do agree that we have to supplement. We have to supplement omega-3s and, and B12. No. no, yes. No, yes. Okay, which omega is Omega-3, well, you asked me two questions. You asked me omega-3, you asked me B12. The answer is no and yes. Okay. Okay, on omega-3s, omega-3s are made by plants only. Only plants can desaturate at the carbon-3 and carbon-6 position, which right. are the two essential fats. No animal can do that. No fish can do that. No cow can do that, etc. So how do you get omega-3 fats? You get them from plants. How does the fish get the omega-3 fat? It eats algae or seaweed. It cannot make omega-3 fats. Why not go to the original source, the plants? They're loaded with omega-3 fats. Omega-3 fatty acid deficiency has never been reported in the world literature except in an experiment done on infant-fed, low-fat infant formula in the 1930s. Right. Then the kids, you see, in the 1930s, they went to formula, and they went to cow milk formula for babies. Well, the kids got fat and sick, so they said, well, the answer is to feed them skim milk. And so they fed them skim milk, and the kids developed fatty acid deficiency. But as far as I know, that's the only case of fatty acid deficiency ever reported in the world literature. So there's no such thing as omega-3 fatty acid deficiency, period, unless you live on an all-beef, pork, chicken diet. Then you can, can ask get a question. So most of, the, most of the experts in the vegan field, you know, Neil Bernard, Dr. Clapper, Grieger, all these guys suggest a multi-mineral, multivitamin supplement, B12 supplement, omega-3 supplements to support the fact that lots of vegans, 80% in one study showed were, were B12 deficient. So they all support some sort of supplementation, which makes people who think about becoming a vegan think, why should I go on a diet that I can't do naturally without taking a supplement? So it doesn't help the cause. So help me understand how we could be a vegan and not require supplementation. And most of the experts in the field okay. say we need. Well, I, first of all, I have to disagree with you. Uh, uh, most of the experts who are my very close friends do not, time. Do, do not make I mean, it certainly comes out as the most important thing they have to say when they say you need to take flaxseed or et cetera. Uh, but they're not supplement promoters. They are food promoters, and supplements are a secondary issue. The people, of course, are naturally interested in. I want to take a pill. I don't want to change my diet. So anyway, there's some truth to what you have to say, but the emphasis of all these people like Gregor and Bernard and Ornish and et cetera is of the food, right. food, food. All right, let's get on to B12. If you read all of my books that I've written over the last 40 years, as you mentioned in the beginning, I've written 13 national best-selling books, and uh, I've had books appear on the New York Times best-selling list. In all of my books, I've recommended since the beginning 
that if you are going to be on the diet I recommend for more than three years, a no animal source diet, that you should take a supplement B12. Because you have a risk of B12 deficiency, maybe, I'm not sure, but I err on the side of offering people B12 supplementation. Maybe there's a risk of one in a million of you developing a B12-related disease. Now, what you just said was that 70% of people who are vegan are B12 deficient. That's based on biochemical tests. That has nothing to do with diseases like a neuropathy or megaloblastic anemia or any other actual disease. The risk of an actual disease is less than one in a million for pure vegans. The risk of having metabolic changes, which is a normal natural thing to occur, is common. But that's what happens, just like that you were talking about the bacteria in the ball. In our patients that we take care of our, our live-in program in Santa Lita, Cal, excuse me, in Santa Rosa, California, in our patients, the ball bacteria change within two to three weeks. And we go from a predominantly gram-positive bacterium clostridium type, which produce carcinogens and other bad things, to a coliform, uh, a coliform type of uh, environment where microbes are now coliforms. That mm. happens in two to three weeks on our diet. And this kind of diet supports good health, reduction in cancer, etc., and is reflected in a change in the bacteria in the colon. I think that's great. People are now focusing on the bacteria of the colon. But that's a, that's, a, that's a side issue. It's just become popular to look at the bacteria. Why don't we look at the whole picture? We've got a bunch of fat people out there. 80% of the population of the U.S. is sick and fat. Uh, they have now, there's a new project, new company out there that has started looking at the bacteria in the bulb of Africans, rural Africans. Because rural Africans are known not to have breast cancer, colon cancer, prostate cancer, multiple sclerosis, rheumatoid arthritis, etc. This is the rural African of old. Africans now are changing rapidly to the American diet. Well, they have uh, been working on isolating the different bacteria species in the bowel of rural Africans. And they're working on making a supplement that they will be selling you, which will be um, essentially African feces in a capsule as a probiotic to, I mean, that's where things are going. Don't give up your cheeseburgers and your Dunkin' Donuts. Instead, just take the African poop. Eat African poop, everything will be fine. Yeah, I think our listeners here are, are well on board with the idea that you can be a unhealthy vegan um, and you can be, if you're eating a whole, you know, non highly processed, refined foods, you're gonna be in trouble no matter what kind of diet that you eat. But a lot of the research does point, like in terms of the longevity research, for example, like the, you know, the centenarians eat about, on average, according to Dan Buettner's work, about a 90% plant-based diet with 10% animal protein. Dr. Walter Longo, one of the best UCSC, UC, USC researchers on longevity, suggests we should do the same. The guy that, the guy that died at 76, trying to restrict calories, is that the man you're talking about? Well, the fasting mimicking diet, he also does that for... for, for Are we talking about the, the man who set up the, uh, 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 the um, isolated living environment in the Phoenix, Arizona area? 
who died at 76 years old. That isn't very old. Excuse me. That was his mentor. We're talking about. No, that was his mentor. He learned. Well, well, the hope he lives longer than his than the guy who came out. What was his name? Do you remember his name? The guy who uh, had the the biosphere, yeah, the the biosphere in Arizona. Anyway, so so I I forgot what point you were trying to make. Go ahead. That I'm wondering if, because you said like the hunter-gatherers were lousy hunters, I agree. They ate some meat. They were mostly plant-based, starch-based. We agree to that. But I'm wondering today if, if people could eat, and a new, study in national, a new study in the Lancet just came out suggesting that we should eat less meat. Probably a Less lot to- meat? They should eat the McDougall diet is what it said. Don't well, give me this less meat stuff. It said red meat once a week in a small amount. Right, the, exactly. Commission, the Eat Lancet Commission last week said you should eat the McDougal diet. They didn't not, use those terms, but they described it almost exactly as it is. Right. Well, the, uh, they don't say that, that I didn't say they'd eat the McDougal diet. They said they should reduce the meat um, and eat a largely plant based with a small allow, uh, occasional allowances for meat, dairy, and sugar is what it is. is the cool small. Red meat once a week, right. small amounts. Right. So you're agreeing that if people were 90% plant-based, like the centenarians, like some of the more longevity research, then that would be a safe diet. And what, what Walter Longo says is that the one study that was a study of, that was published in the Journal of American Medicine showed it was, a, it was the Seventh-day Adventist study, over 63,000 people, that, the, that they measured vegetarians, vegans, lacto-ova vegetarians, and pescatarians and meat eaters. And it was the pescatarians who lived the longest. And also, not, but not, not that I remember. You, you, you and I remember differently what Dr. Phillips wrote over 30 years ago on the Adventist Health Studies. I don't know why our memories are so different. Well, this, what they did is they did a study that was published in 2002 on uh, Adventists who are known as vegan vegetarians. And what they found is the average life expectancy of a Seventh-day Adventist was 10 years longer than the average life expectancy of the average Californian. That's what the study showed. It was published in 19, excuse me, 2002 is the original study by Phillips on the Adventist system. So like I say, you and I have similar memories but they're not the same of what the research says. This was in this Journal of American Medicine published in, in 2013, I believe. And it was another, there were many Seventh-day Adventist studies. And this one actually measured the details of, of the different vegetarians and vegans came in second. And that's what some of the longevity research does point to, that if you eat two servings of fish per week and a 90% whole food, non-processed plant-based diet, you're going to be right in, the, in, in that place of getting your omega-3s and getting your B12. From- we just talked about the omega-3s. We just talked about the B12s. Don't bring that up again. That's stupid. You agree that, that a 10% animal, animal-based diet would be a healthy diet? Well, it would be as good as a 10% uh, uh, M&M diet or Babe Ruth bar diet or uh, popsicle diet. In other words, in other words, uh, chocolate candy is 50% fat. A good, uh, a lean steak is 50% fat. Right. So they're basically the same. They are treats intended for special occasions like Halloween 
and Easter and Christmas and Thanksgiving. Right. So can I say 10% fat? No, I can say you should reserve these things for delicacies. And you as a person over 21 years old, educated, ought to be able to make the decisions as to whether you smoke, drink, right. or kill yourself with your fork and spoon. But you ought to know the truth. So okay. I know I can't say 10%. I mean, I can't say okay. 20%. I can't say 5%. So how do you interpret, how do you, and this is just so helpful, and thank you for doing this, guy, what, your, what your, your belief is, but it's so important for people to hear you dispute the, 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 the science and what the Lancet article well, excuse me, I do not dispute the science. Okay, well, the science you, clearly supports what I say. You sure. interpret it differently than I do. Okay, but well, I will go word for word, head to head, sentence for sentence, paragraph for paragraph with you on any study even though our differences are minor. And you know what? At 72 years old, I'm not blind, I'm not deaf, and I'm not dumb. I know what they say. So, okay. excuse me, I don't agree with your interpretation. Now, let's get to the fish part. I want to get to the fish part, please. Yeah. I'm your guest. Let me answer the fish part. It is so sad to think that people believe that fish is good for them. When I was a young boy, when I was a young boy, I've always been interested in the ocean. I owned a sailboat. I windsurf all over the world. I, uh, you know, I, I'm an ocean guy. I scuba dived all over the world. I'm an ocean guy. I love the ocean. Compared to when I was a young man, 90% of the sea life is gone. So if you still believe eating fish is good, you better hurry up and eat it because it's almost completely vanished from planet Earth. Plus, these fish are so high on the food chain, they are uh, full of chemical contaminants. You can tell how much fish a person eats based upon their methylmercury content of their body fat. Six pieces of sushi, six pieces of sushi bought in New York, published by the New York Times, exceeds the EPA and the FDA limits of methylmercury for a person to eat. So it is a dangerous food that is almost extinct, and I love the oceans. So don't give me, or don't give your listeners any idea that the scientific research is in favor of killing the rest of the fish on the planet to make human beings more prolific. Good God, we have enough human beings on planet Earth. We got seven billion. I, I couldn't agree with you more that, that, that the most compelling reason to become a vegan is to save the planet and to save the animals. And there's no question about that. All I'm trying to discern is that, you know, are there, are, are there reasons why folks should consider a small amount of animal protein? And let me ask you this one question. If you could just interpret the, this new study in The Lancet that just came out with 30 scientists doing their review, and they said, just interpret this. How much, what does this actually mean for us? that we should have a largely plant-based diet with small occasional allowances for meat, dairy, and sugar. What does that mean to you? This is the- that, that, means, that means a couple of things, a couple of things to me. Yeah. Uh, one is uh, people practice fear-based medicine. They're afraid. They're afraid to come out and tell the truth because they're afraid of offending the meat, dairy, and egg industry by being total. Secondarily, the researchers who published this study are confronted by the fact that their dinner plate in front of themselves is full of the very foods that they're condemning. 
If you go to a heart association or a cancer meeting, what you'll find is they serve roast beef and cheesecake. So the problem is, is these researchers are trying as hard as they can, but they can't see beyond their own dinner plate. That is the problem. When you say something is killing the planet and killing people, you don't say, you know, you ought to cut back. You don't look at a cigarette smoker and say, you ought to cut from 20 to 10 a day. You don't talk to an alcoholic and say, you ought to switch to beer and wine. Excuse me, you talk to people who are destroying themselves and the planet. You don't say a little bit of self and planetary destruction is okay. People don't learn that way. A little bit, I don't, I used to smoke. I quit October 20th, 1972. I used to smoke two, three packs of cigarettes a day. I have been able to forego that bad habit for what, 40, 50 years. However, if I had one cigarette today, I would have five tomorrow, and next week I'd be up to two packs a day. For most people, we can't do a little bit. So the compromise made by the e-commission from the Lancet, the e-Lancet commission that you're talking about, which was published on the 16th of January, 2019, that study, as well as the Canadian Dietetic Association new guidelines, are written by people who themselves are sitting down to breakfasts of eggs, lunches of hamburgers, and dinners of chicken. They have a problem seen beyond their dinner plate, but they also have the knowledge to know what the truth is. You can't turn around and tell me that meat will give you cancer, constipation, and heart disease, and say a little bit's okay. Now, I can sit back and say, these things fit in a category of food poison, which are free oils and animal foods. There are two categories of food poison. You can eat as much as you want of them. You're free and 21, whatever you want, but you gotta know the truth. And when somebody says a little bit's okay, as you have said, and you say the Lancet Commission says, and you can interpret the new Canadian guidelines as saying, they say, don't get meat, don't get protein from meat, get it from plants, the new dietary guidelines of Canada. You can stand back and say, well, everybody else recommends a little bit. Why do they do that? They do that because they can't get past their own dinner plate. My mother used to tell me, she smoked and she was, so she was 85. And I used to say, mom, you've got to quit smoking. She says, what, do you want me to get so nervous that I get in a car accident? accident? That was her excuse. And we have people eating the very food who are taking and writing our scientific papers. That's part of the problem. Plus they're afraid of industry. They could get assassinated. They could be assassinated in the usual sense, or just politically. For example, my good friend, Peter Gertzky, the head of the Cochrane Collaboration, who which you mentioned, Cochrane, the head is my friend. He was just fired as the head of the Cochrane Collaboration, which he's been head of for 16 years and founded. Why? He doesn't know. He's going to be a guest on my webinars, which I run twice a month, uh, from my website, drmcdougall.com. He doesn't know. It's Gilbert Welch who wrote about uh, uh, overtreatment of breast cancer in the big five medical journals. H. Gilbert Welch from Dartmouth College. He was just censored for plagiarism, which is really a false acquisition. Acquisition. Uh, so the establishment will spare no effort to stop the truth and the competition. There's too much money involved. This is not a conspiracy. This is just a matter of you get your hand in my pocketbook, gentlemen, and I won't tolerate it. So watch out.
and there's no limits as to what I will do to you to stop you from telling the truth. So what was unique about <laughs> that? You know, what was unique about that Lanza study was it was 30 scientists that deliberated for three years before they made this Walter record. Willett, the head scientist, still is a meat eater. Uh, good God. All I right. just told you the problem. All right, I'm good. We'll move on. Um, medicine, revised study uh, with the Mediterranean diet where they gave the people on the Mediterranean diet a, 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 all the olive oil they could eat, all the almonds they could eat on top of their Mediterranean diet, and they compared them with a low fat, with a low fat diet. And they found that, that the, as you know, that, the, that the, they had significant reduction in cardiovascular disease with the olive oil added to an already sort of olive oil rich diet and the almonds, and, and that outperformed the low fat diet. This study, New England Journal of Medicine, just revives in 2000. study. How do you, how do you help people study. That? Yeah, you know the yeah. study. How do you help us yeah. understand that study? All right. First of all, you help us. You help us understand the study. Who paid for the study? Who paid for the study? I'm not sure. Well, it was paid for by two olive oil industries and two nut industries. Three of them located in Spain, one in California. They paid for the study. The Mediterranean diet is a business proposition. What is the Mediterranean diet? Is it the one they eat in Turkey? Oh no, maybe it's the one they eat in Spain. Oh no, it's down here, the one they eat in Greece. What is the Mediterranean diet? The only thing that stands out about the Mediterranean diet is what you mentioned, and that is you're encouraged to eat olive oil and nuts. Well, who do you think wants you to eat olive oil and nuts? The two sponsors, the four sponsors of the study. This is just business. It's lying at its worst. There's no such thing as the Mediterranean diet. It varies from 10% fat to 60% fat. It varies from high animal to low animal. It, and you go to the Mediterranean area these days and you can't walk up a city block without finding a McDonald's or Burger King or Pizza Hut. So don't tell me that the Mediterranean diet is valuable science. It is, I think I used the phrase before, I won't use it again. It is not true, it is just a publicity gimmick, period. Nobody so, ever ate the Mediterranean diet. There is no such thing as the Mediterranean diet. So all the science like emotional industry on the MIND diet, the Mediterranean diet that decreases Alzheimer's by 53 and 54% and lowers blood sugar and reduces diabetes. All that includes a little bit of fish, a little bit of meat, and a little bit of oil. You're and a few smokers and a few drunks and a few people who ride without the safety belts. And it, uh, you know, it includes a lot of different people. So what you're saying is we can't believe any of this. Science. You're talking New England Journal of Medicine. We can't believe any of it. The New England Journal of Medicine uh, was once uh, headed by Marcy Angel for 13 years. She was the editor-in-chief. She quit 10 years ago because she couldn't stand the influence of the food and pharmaceutical industries on the New England Journal of Medicine. So the New England Journal of Medicine is basically owned by industry, as are the other in, uh, journals. The British Medical Journal just was paid by a low-carb proponent, uh, Nina Tol. That's not right. Anyway, she's okay. a, one of the more famous. Who am I talking about? Nina T. Anyway, uh, they paid they paid uh, tens of thousands of dollars to the British Medical Journal to have her study published in it. These journals, you know, I I am not a uh, proponent of the current administration 
in the United States. But I have to say, I have learned some things from this horrible administration that I never really understood before, and that is about fake news and alternative facts. Even though I am totally disgusted by what's going on, the truth is that the medical journals, the education provided in our hospitals and our universities is fake news. It is lies from the industry. It is alternative facts. Over 70% of the research taught to our students, taught to our consumers, is paid for by the food and drug and device industries. Excuse me, this is fake news, alternative facts, and that is true, period. And this is exactly what we do here at LiveSpot.com is we take you know, ancient medical time-tested wisdom, and we try to find science to back that up. And if a lot of times you have science on both sides of the aisle, that doesn't make no, sense. No, 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 no. That's where I want to correct you. There is okay. not science on both sides. There are people who design methodology based upon the funding they get from Kraft uh, Foods or Eli Drug Company or whatever. I can design a study for you to show anything you want. Well, that's what I'm and saying. And when I, when I read the methodology, I can tell how they cheated. Maybe you can too. So don't tell me that there are all kinds of scientific studies that support both points of view. I gave you the statement that is without argument, and that is all large successful populations throughout all of verifiable history have obtained the bulk of their calories from starch. That mm-hmm. means 99.999% of the 100 billion people who walk this earth have consumed starch as the primary source of their calories. So argue that one. Well, I sort of did when I, sh- I talked about the journal, the, in the study from the Journal of uh, Clinical Nutrition that talked about that your percentages are disputed by some anthropologists. So we let that one go. That's all- not true. Well, there- but go well, ahead. Go ahead. You can, you, can, you, can, you can convince your listeners that oh, the anthropologic true. studies don't support a starch-based diet but I will tell you plain and simple, you are wrong. Okay, I'm I not have read the research. I've got a whole, in my newest book, uh, The Healthiest Diet on the Planet, I list about 20 studies from yeah. the recent journals that show that we were starch eaters in every single population from the Neanderthals, you know, wherever you want to go, 30, 40,000 years ago, 105,000 years ago, 2.6 million years ago, when we talk about the, the uh, pre-human primates, you know, I'm sorry, I don't agree with you. I do not read the same way you do. And I don't know, but I do want to point out to the listeners that you and I agree 99.9%. Okay. And- But you want to focus on the, you want to focus on the minutia. Well, because- Why do you want to do that? Why do you want to focus on the minutia? Because the the people- because the people who are listening to this podcast are actually really into their health. They're not the junk vegan eaters or the junk meat eaters. These are people who are really willing to go the distance and really do whatever they think is the absolute best. And what you're suggesting is that there is studies here that talk about the ketogenic benefits. That's why there's science to back that up. Now you're saying that science is flawed, but who's to say that the science on the vegan side is a flaw. How are people- All, all you have to do is read and be intelligent. You yeah, don't well. have to have somebody say it. I can see it, you can see it, other doctors can see it. It's present in the letters to the editor, how they lied. 
Excuse me, there's no problem retrieving the line. There's a lot of very intelligent researchers who are doing research on the keto diet who are very brilliant, who are finding positive. You mean, you mean those working for the Atkins Foundation? No, because no, no. They are. Yes, no, they are. No, they, no. Hey, listen, I can, we could go down the list of, right. of, 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 of quote researchers who have published right. studies on the benefit of the ketogenic diet, and I will show you the financial attachment to the meat industry, dairy industry, and the Atkins Foundation. Right. These people, both, et cetera, work for the industry. Now, let me point out that I have lived longer than Robert Atkins. Robert Atkins, actually, I uh, was very much involved in his death in the sense that a year and a half after he died, uh, Neil Bernard and I went on a media campaign talking about Robert Atkins' death and how he died when, at a time when he was declared obese obese with heart disease, horrible heart disease. In fact, the year before he died, he had such severe cardiomyopathy, heart failure, that he was almost dead. And he lived another year. And in that year period of time, he went on the Larry King show. And he told Larry King that he had perfectly clean coronary arteries. Unfortunately for him, I had his, his autopsy report. Unfortunately for him, I had his angiograms provided by his wife, Veronica Atkins. So I knew what the truth was. He was loaded with atherosclerosis. So, you know, th these people are just plain and simple liars. And I think the best explanation I could give you is a video that I did comparing the physical and the physical appearance of our team versus their team. You look at Lauren Cordain, the author of the paleo diet the Paleo Diet book, Lauren Cordain. That man is so sick looking, I can hardly believe he can make it on stage. He is obese. You look at Sally Fallon, who's the head of the uh, uh, Western Potter Foundation, uh, who promotes a high meat diet. She, every time I see her, she's more obese. She's obese. Excuse me. You look at Barry Sears, the head of the Zone Diet. He's obese. I could go on and on and on and on. If you, you, you say they have their research on their side and they're articulate, fine. Put them on video. Don't well, look think, at their words. Don't listen to their words. Let's see what they look like. They look like they're dying because of what they believe in eat. Right. And I think that the, the current trend in the, the research is clearly that a lower protein diet, a low meat diet, according to that, pretty much everyone is the trend. And the high Atkins, high meat diet. Yeah, know. but that's not what the public is doing. Well, no. It may, but, be clear, it may be clear to you and I, sir. It may be yeah. clear to you and I, but the public is keto-friendly over carbohydrate-friendly. Well, what's, what's going on in the United States is a trend that was high in the 1970s of low-carb diets, which, which, you know, as Atkins became in disfavor in the 70s, we went toward the Pritikin Burkett uh, program, uh, which is low fat, high carb. And now since the 1990s, in fact, in 1990, my publisher, which is Penguin Putnam Dutton, I was in their top five selling of other authors. Uh, so I was very important to this company. 
my editors came to me in 1990 and they said, uh, John, you have to change your, your uh, writing. You have to start writing about low carb diets, like the Atkins diet. Otherwise we won't, we won't publish any more of your books. I said, what do you think I do this for money? I really believed it. But you know what? I said, and I said, you know, it's never going to happen. The science is so clear on the danger of eating that diet. I mean, Atkins research that he has paid for through his troll, Atkins research shows that 70% of the people who follow his diet are, uh, are suffering from halitosis and uh, they're sick. Now, his own studies show that the people are published. There's no personal appearance. He was, you never saw Atkins with a shot below, below here because it was Santa Claus. <laughs> the rest <laughs> of the way. Hey, you know, you, no, excuse me, I don't mean you personally, but your listeners can live in ignorance if you want because people love to hear good news about their ha bad habits. And what we are doing is challenging something that most of us have lived on for a lifetime and love dearly, even though it's killing us. Right, right. Well, I think that things are changing and a lot uh, of that change is thanks to you and the work that you've done. You know, veganism is exploding. Uh, meat eating is actually on the decline. And that's hard fact. I think you would agree. And I think we can thank a lot of your work. Maybe you shot for the moon. You didn't get everybody to be vegan, but you made a big dent. And I want to thank you for that. I want to sort of, you know, ask you, go back to the seasonal eating concept again. I, I, I like that, by the way. You heard me say I like that theory. It's, it's, yeah. it's, it's yeah. brand new to me. And I, 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 you, you stimulated me. Thank you. We publish a, a grocery list and a recipe list and a superfood list for free for every month of the year for folks to get. To Where is that website? At lifespa.com. L-I-F-E-S-P-A. L-I-F-E-S-P-A.com. And uh, I wrote a book called The Three Season Diet, which is about eating uh, in season, that there's a spring harvest, a summer harvest, and a fall for winter eating harvest. And the diet should change dramatically from one season to the next from so you so you kill you kill chickens and pigs and cows in the winter and it's okay. Uh, so no. so you add to global warming and dietary destruction in the winter and it's okay. Uh, excuse me, is that what you're telling me? Are no, you telling no. me that it's okay to become to become the enemy of the planet and people in the winter because it's cold? Are you telling me that is your philosophy? Am I no. hearing you correctly? No, what I'm no. telling you. That I've been a vegetarian most of my life. I've been in practice for over 35 years. I treat a lot of vegetarians, and I've seen. What kind a of doctor are you? I'm a chiropractor, but I spent two years in India studying their traditional system of medicine. Okay. Well, I I I I won't hold that in your favor because of my disdain for medical doctors. Thank you. You see, you see, I'm in a profession where. Uh, we learn nothing about human nutrition. In fact, I got a law passed in the state of California titled SB 380, which forces doctors to learn about human nutrition. It forces the 11 medical schools in California to teach nutrition, the 500 hospitals to teach nutrition. Governor Jerry Brown of California signed that law in September of 2011. So my colleagues 
don't know anything about what their customers should eat. And I will offer as evidence that a share of my colleagues are recommending an all-meat diet. Another share recommend a vegan diet. And another share don't give a damn and don't have any idea, which is 90% of them. What if you were a veterinarian? What if you were a veterinarian and somebody came into you and said, I have a dog or cat. And I think they're sick because of what they eat. And you as a veterinarian said, I'm sorry, ma'am, I can't help you. They don't teach anything about what the nutritional requirements are for cats and dogs in veterinary school. I asked the legislators in California if that was a problem in California, that veterinarians were taught nothing about what different animals eat. Don't you think that deserved a law? And the legislators were so excited about that analogy that they passed unanimously both houses, SB 380, and was signed without hesitation by Governor Jerry Brown into law, that human beings have a diet and caretakers of human beings, which are primarily medical doctors in our society, know nothing about human nutrition, period. So do, do you ever run across, as I have in my practice, where some of your patients, I'm not sure if you're still seeing patients or not, but um, where they have a difficult time being a vegetarian or being a vegan, they don't thrive in that, on that diet. I've seen that, you know, Never enough. Seen it. Never seen it. Never <clears throat> seen it. I've taken care of 10,000 people. I've taken six care of 6,000 people in a live-in situation where I've kept them for 10 to 12 days. I have never seen anybody not thrive on. It's like having an automobile that is uh, equipped with a diesel engine and you instead make a mistake and put gasoline in the gas tank. Right. What happens? So would you say, though, that if you're you looking turn at... turn around and you decide, oh, I picked the wrong handle off the gas pump and you put right. diesel in the car, what do you think will happen? It runs perfectly. If you take people who are eating a poisonous diet and you put them on the human diet, what do you think happens and how often? It's just like asking me, how often does a cigarette smoker who quits stop coughing? How often does a drunk who stops alcohol stop falling down? How often? How often? 10% of the time? 70% of the time? 100%? Excuse me. This is so basic. No, I never see any people do poorly on a vegan diet. Okay, great. A vegan diet could be Cokes and potato chips. I don't teach a vegan diet. And so I have seen people do terrible on vegan diets. I teach a starch-based diet with fruits and vegetables. And if you decide you want to have birthday cake on your birthday, wonderful. If you want to go trick-or-treating on Halloween, wonderful. If you want to have a piece of turkey on Thanksgiving, wonderful. But you can't start out every morning with Easter and go on to Christmas and Thanksgiving for lunch and dinner and finish every lunch and every dinner with a birthday party, which is what Americans do. That is what I'm teaching. All large, successful populations of people throughout all of verifiable human history have obtained the bulk of their calories from starch, period. So if you can have turkey on Thanksgiving, how much animal protein of any kind do you feel is safe? I can't answer that. How many cigarettes are safe? How many cigarettes can I? What do I do? A patient comes in and says, Doc, okay, Doc, Doc, look, look, Doc, I've got this terrible cough and I'm dying of lung cancer. How many cigarettes should I smoke? 
Hey, Doc, I'm dying of cirrhosis of the liver. How many, how many glasses of whiskey can I eat today? You know, somebody's dying of heart disease or breast cancer or ulcerative colitis or rheumatoid arthritis or multiple sclerosis. And by the way, I, two blocks from me is OHSU, where we did a big study, as you pointed out, on multiple sclerosis and diet. showed phenomenal results in general health. But, you know, what, if I know something's poisonous, how much arsenic should you eat a day? You could probably, I mean, they used to use arsenic to make their cheeks go red. Women did. It was, that was common practice. But do we recommend arsenic for uh, people to take to redden their cheeks these days? How much arsenic should we recommend to people? So what person? Don't ask me that question, how much poison. It's your choice. You're over 21. This is a free country. You can kill yourself in any manner you want. However, you and I, and I do mean you, as an educator, have a responsibility to tell the truth without diluting the message just because we happen to have maintained and retained bad habits ourselves, or we have some financial interest in doing the wrong thing. Honest educators can overcome those obstacles of personal habits and financial gains to tell their customers the truth. That's what I believe. You know, just like you said, I'm, I'm not here to try to prove anything. I'm here to try to help clear up the confusion that so many people are confused. And one of the things is people are doing more and more is going back to ancestral diets. So I'm curious if you were to say, okay, the hunter-gatherers, northern hunter-gatherers, how much animal protein out of their diet, what was the percentage of animal protein that they actually consumed? I don't know. Were you around 30,000 years ago? Well, you, we, oh, I have no idea how much. I probably depended upon the year of the season or where they lived or how many animals were available. As I said, I, they're none of them vegans. We've discussed the issues. I, I've been very clear with you. I don't have to repeat myself. So what you're saying then is that based on season and geography, the 90% number that you threw out as a starch-based diet could dramatically shift seasonally and ge geographically, correct? Well, it does. It does. When you live at the extremes of the environment, such as the Inuit Eskimo, you can't live on the Google diet or whatever you recommend. You must eat a diet that's 70% from your environment, which happens to be walruses and whales and fish. I mean, but, but that's a population of total of 60,000 people. I'm not talking that's about it. We're talking about a tiny little segment of the world living on the extremes of an environment. No, I'm talking about people who live in, in France, 34. No. Not true. Where the starches were not as available. Not the, true. Not true. I'm sorry. Not true. As I say, you and I read the papers differently. What you're winter. saying is not true. Maybe you have some isolated populations of French people who ate a high meat diet or high vegan diet. But the bulk of the calories of that population of Gaul came from starch. Period. Got it. Well, it's good that we agree on 99% of the things we're talking about. And you know uh, what? Being agreeable is not educational. You know, hopefully, and you are a very strong man with a very high, uh, a high uh, uh, content of knowledge of the of the scientific literature and nutrition. And uh, I recognize that. I really appreciate how proud you are. 
and to have the opportunity for you and I to bring out in a strong manner our differences of opinion and why is a real opportunity. People don't learn from agreement. They learn from disagreement. And I want to thank you for giving me the opportunity to focus on some tiny points. But that's what you wanted to focus on. And that's what the people are focusing on. That's why they're not getting better. They're focusing on supplements. They're focusing on whether or not it's gluten or GMO or other types of stuff. They're not focusing on the problem, which is the consumption of livestock. Livestock causes over half the greenhouse greenhouse warming gases, half by the livestock industry. The World Watch Institute says so. You can step back and realize that we can change that overnight if our leaders stood up and said something. For example, if Mr. Putin from Russia, if Prime Minister Modi from India, if President Obama from the United States stood up, I don't know who the hell that other guy is. Anyway, there's somebody else around. President Obama of the United States. If, if influential, honest people would stand up and say that we can save the world by changing from an animal food-based diet to a starch-based diet, uh, we could make a difference. We could do this today. We could do I, this certainly by tomorrow. And that would give us another 10, 20, 30 years to get everybody to have solar panels on their roofs and everybody to own a Tesla an electric car, but you ain't gonna do it overnight, but you can change the food overnight. And I wanna thank you for 40 years of service and work because you have made such a massive dent in this culture's meat-eating habits. And I really do believe that you're moving the needle dramatically and I couldn't thank you enough. Uh, I, I, and thank you for your time and all of your hard work. And I do think that we are, you know, we, maybe we're splitting some hairs, but maybe very important hairs, but we are splitting some because a lot of listeners want to know the details. And, you know, and I think the clear cut message here is that we need to shift from an animal based diet to a plant based diet. And that's where we need to go. And Excuse me, a starch based diet, not a plant based diet. You cannot live on cauliflower, kale and broccoli. Starch-based diet. Thank you. Thank you. For that, for that important correction. Because in people, until people understand that when they look at their plate, 90% of the food should be rice and or potatoes and or corn and or, you know, 90% of the food looking back at you needs to be starch. What Don't about the, one last, one last question, Dr. McGill, one last question. What about the idea that, that the fuel supply, starch, would actually shift dramatically you know, to maybe a, hang on, a more kind of fat-based ketogenic style diet. I did find studies to show that like the amylase enzyme increases in our body seasonally in the fall when these starches are harvested and the amylase enzyme decreases in the winter when they're not available, suggesting that we did make dramatic shifts in our starch eating ability. So what about shifting and giving those, those starch receptors a break and shifting the fuel supply to a ketogenic receptor, which might come just from flat out famine as opposed to high fat, but it definitely seemed to happen when we went from feasts to famine. What do you think about that? I think you're making excuses for your own personal diet. I don't, well, 
I'm not suggesting. I'm not suggesting. That's what I think. You ask what I think. I, I like. I just told you. I'm repeating myself. So it's time to end this interview. I just told you a few minutes ago. Is it okay in the winter time to be a, an animal killer and a planet destroyer, just you because you think your metabolism changes and your amylase shifts? You know, I'm saying that. So I can give you a whole discussion on amylase and human evolution. The difference between primates, lesser primates, and human primates is that we developed the ability to digest starch by dramatically increasing our enzyme production for amylase. Right. So uh, we can talk about amylase all day long, and I know the principal investigators who did this research personally. Right. So you want to go amylase for a while, buddy, we can do it. But it does not give you the right to be a bad, per bad person, wrong word. To be a planet destroyer, a health destroyer in the wintertime because you think your bacteria change. No, 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 no. you're not getting- You are not allowed to do that in my world. You're, you're, I'm sorry, but I feel like you missed my point. I'm talking about in the springtime during a period of famine, not me. No, during a, fa during a famine, during, during, during a famine, uh, I would likely eat my fellow passengers on the jet that crashed not, in the middle of a snow field. I'm not talking about like- Starting to death. I'm not talking about famine. I'm talking about the fact that during the spring, it's a very austere time of year for it's eating. Spring. Austere means famine. 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 Did we slip Did into... Famine people eat. My, my but every day is a feast for Americans. My only question is, on a 100% vegetarian plant-based diet, did we... Starch-based diet. Well, in the springtime, did we shift towards burning fat because we didn't have as much starch in the springtime? I don't know that. I don't know that to be true. First of all, people did not have the option. They still only had bows and arrows. They still had no way of efficiently killing and catching animals. So, no, I don't agree with that. I think they stored their rice and their corn and their potatoes in little huts after they dried them out. And when springtime scarcity came, they just opened the door of their storage cabinet and brought out the starch. Because if they didn't, they would starve to death because the men were so inadequate in their ability to catch animals. In most of the societies, the exception being the Eskimo, Inuit Eskimo, because that's all they had to do. They spent 7,000 calories, between three and 7,000 calories a day to stay alive by eating from their environment, which happened to be animals. And the traditional Eskimos average lifespan was 27 years. Eskimos today have a completely different situation. They talk about going back to the traditional Eskimo diet to be healthy. However, the people who live in Alaska today are not doing that. What they're doing is they are living in heated homes, driving heated SUVs, and going through the drive-through line and catching their fish with a green lure. A green lure. A green lure. A dollar bill. They order a fish sandwich. That's how they get their fish today. And as a result, the Alaskan Eskimo Inuit people are some of the fattest, sickest, diabetic, heart disease-laden people onto the planet because of the change in their environment. Now, if they went back to living in igloos, and hunting for their food, they couldn't survive on what you and I recommend. That wouldn't be adequate. They have to have that 
uh, food from their environment just to get the three to 7,000 calories a day they need to live. Right. Agreed. So anyway, the reason I teach uh, red and green, black and white, yes and no, right and wrong, is because people don't understand moderation. Moderation kills. When you give people permission, I'm that way, I told you about cigarettes and booze, giving me permission to consume those things means that I will go right back into my previous eating habits. You see, you drink to a level of intoxication, you smoke to a level of intoxication that the body is uh, designed for. That's why they make wine bottles this big. That's how much it takes to get the average person drunk. That's why they put 20 cigarettes in a package. That's because it takes, that's what the average person has to consume to get their nicotine for the day. So, you, you know, there's no moderation. So if you tell your patients, your listeners, your uh, 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 podcast followers that have listened to this interview, if you tell them a little bit is okay, you are doing them a disservice. You must tell them the truth what things are, and then you must say to them, I'm not your caretaker. You can do whatever you want. I don't live a, I personally don't live a perfect life, but I live a life uh, that is uh, dominated by the correct information. So I can choose when I decide not to look both ways when I walk across the street. I know I'm supposed to, but I don't have to because that's my right. You have no right telling people it's okay to eat fish and beef, et cetera, in the winter because their microbacteria change. You are doing a disservice to your listeners by doing that. Give them the opportunity. As my son, who is a professor of medicine at OHSU says, dad, dad, I don't have to teach my patients to cheat. They do that all on their own. You don't have to teach your followers to cheat. They will do that all on their own. You must teach them the truth. And that is the human being is designed as a starch eater with fruits and vegetables and animal foods and free oils are poisons, period. And how much poison you want to eat? It's up to you. I don't care. I really don't care, except for the fact that you are destroying my grandchildren's future. That bothers me a lot. Well, I want to say one thing, a couple of things. One. Thank you so much. I think I'll remember this interview with you for the rest of my life. It's game changer. I definitely um, didn't come here to in any way try to prove one diet or another. I only wanted I to confuse you. You offered some great challenges, and I appreciate it because otherwise, quite honestly, I get bored easily. And I wasn't bored one minute of the time with you. And when you when someone like me is not nearly as sophisticated. Um, you know, in reading these studies as you are, because you've written a lot of them, it is very confusing to know which study you can believe in which study. All large populations of people throughout all of verifiable human what? history have obtained the bulk of their calories from starch. I right. don't care whether you're a historian or an epidemiologist or a religious follower or a reader of scientific information. There is no dissenting information con predicting the fact that I just told you.
That's the only argument you need to hold. Yeah. I don't care what they published last week in the Lancet or the British Medical Journal or the New England right. Journal as a kindness from the industries of food and pharmacy. I don't care. And it's so valuable to hear your take on that because most people, that's all they have is the studies that are cited in either in articles or in journals. Oh, hey. And, and, and because people love to hear good news about their bad habits, I remember a full front page article in the San Francisco Chronicle on how good it was for you to eat chocolate. I bet that was the best-selling edition they ever had. People love to hear good news about their bad habits. So somebody comes on with a new breakthrough study. It's okay to eat fish or it's okay to eat as much beef as you want or ketogenic diets are the secret for curing cancer. Even though they're lying, even though they can easily prove, they prove to be liars, the customer is just sitting there waiting for the good news about their next tri-tip and our ice cream. They, oh, tell me more. I want to hear more. And you know, one of the main principles of, uh, of uh, public relations, of, uh, of uh, advertising that uh, I learned recently, probably 10 years ago, is that you don't have to convince people you're right. All you have to do is give them a little bit of doubt. That's all. Just a little bit of doubt so that they can make a wrong decision. So when studies come out, as they do in the newspaper and the journals all the time, they say, like you have to me at least 10 times in this interview, they say, but the research says that you should do eat a little bit of fish or a little bit of this or a little bit of that. Oh, I love this guy. This guy with the green background. I'd rather listen to him than the guy with the background of the, of the river behind him. I don't like that guy with the background of the river behind him because I like to hear good news about my bad habits. I'm going to look, into, look at the guy who has the green screen right there. That's who I'm going to listen to. People love to hear good news about their bad habits. That's why we have part of the problem. That's part of the reason we have the problem we have. The yeah. main reason is that money... Trumps, I don't, shouldn't use that word, but I can't think of another one, so I will. Money trumps truth and success, which we have. I've published uh, data, as you've mentioned, on 1,615 people. The Oregon Health and Science University, two city blocks away from me right now, has independently studied my, the McDougall program, my program. They picked all the patients. We have a randomized, controlled, single-blinded study best uh, methodology you can possibly design. It's changed the neurologic practices worldwide, our study has. And uh, it's there, it's available, it's there for you to read. Uh, I've spent 50 years, I've, oh, more than 50 years I've been a doctor. And I've spent 40 years with my uh, dedication entirely towards uh, helping my patients regain their health by stopping by stopping the behavior that's making them sick. It's as simple as not throwing gasoline on a fire. Wonderful. And I'm sure that this interview, I hope to send a lot of people your way. And you can get more information on his website. Sign up for his newsletter at drmcdougall.com. Dr. McDougall, thank you so much. Uh, I, I really, really, really appreciate your interview and your style and your intelligence and your dedication. And I sincerely mean that. I 
I'm not a person of idle words. So it's been a great hour for me. Uh, not only do we do webinars twice a month, which you can learn about from my website, we also have over 700 recipes that are free there. Everything's free on the website, drmcdougall.com. We run a 10-day live-in program and weekends where people come and actually spend time with me, Mary, my wife, and the doctors who work for us and dietitians and psychologists and so on. So we have all kinds of opportunities, all the way from everything free on the website, drmcdougall.com, to you can come and spend some time with us. And of course, we won't give you that free. You can come and spend 10 days and we will lock you up and we will make you do this and take you off. By the way, our research says, and you can read it in the scientific papers published, that our compliance rate is 85% at the end of a year. 85% of people are following our program strictly at the end of a year. And is published in the scientific research, the fact that we get nearly 90% of people to reduce or stop all of their blood pressure and diabetic medications plus other medications. That's what you accomplish in 10 days with us in Santa Rosa, California at the McDougall program. We would love to take you in and lock you up and brainwash you for a whole 10 days. Wonderful. And you walk away saying that's the best money and time I ever spent as the 55 people who are there right now in Santa Rosa are saying to themselves after only three days, that's the best money and time I ever spent. Beautiful. And you can get more information about that at drmcdougall.com. Yeah, drmcdougall.com. Real simple, D-R-M-C-D-O-U-G-A-L-L, two L's, drmcdougall.com. Or just go to Google and put in John McDougall diet or McDougall diet or McDougall period. And my name will come up. I've been at this a long time. I've uh, had the opportunity to publish many, 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 many lectures and videos, many, many articles and many books, and had my own television show and so on, radio shows. But uh, I'm just getting started. They say, they say you're supposed to retire at 65. What would I do? I'm not gonna retire. I'm just getting started. Well, good for you. Don't stop, we need you. And uh, we're super, super grateful for everything you do. Thank you so much. I'm a fan. I watch you regularly and appreciate everything you do. Thank you. It was a pleasure. Really, really was a pleasure. Thank you. You have made my day. Bye-bye. Bye-bye.